So now I'm pleased to introduce uh, Katya Lisi. She has written the afterword to two books about her grandmother, the biographer and historian Iris Origo. Katya was born in Rome and has worked in media, publishing, and journalism, and is a literary translator from English and French into Italian. In southern Tuscany, she assists her mother, Benedetta, in the management of the family estate, La Foce, which maintains historic gardens that are visited by uh, Iris Origo fans from all over the world, and I believe also by lovers of music who come for concerts there. Iris Origo dazzled readers and critics with her wide-ranging writings, starting in 1935 with a biography of the Italian poet Giacomo Leopardi. I myself first came across her writing as a medieval history major at Amherst, where we read The Merchant of Prato, the life of a 14th century man of business, the kind of close biogra biographical study of an unknown person that is now common in academe but was not common 75 years ago when it was written. Iris Arrigo is perhaps best known for her account of life in Italy during and after the Second World War, when she sheltered and helped refugee children as well as allied prisoners of war who had escaped. That book, War in Valdorcia, has been reprinted many times since it was first published in 1947, most recently in an edition produced last year by the New York Review of Books as part of the New York Review's Classics series, a, a truly splendid enterprise in publishing. Tonight, we will hear about a companion work, Images and Shadows, Parts of a Life, which was reissued just this month. It is a memoir of Iris Arrigo's early life that explores topics including her American and Irish parents, her move to Italy, and the work of writing and memory she pursued. We could have no better guide tonight than the subject's own granddaughter, herself an accomplished writing and a steward of Iris Arrigo's work. So please join me in welcoming Katya Lisi. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you so much. Um, as Cullen beautifully put it, I think the best guide to my uh, story of my grandmother's life as told by her in Images and Shadows is through some beautiful old photographs that we uh, dug out from the family archives and which beautifully uh, reflect the various periods, stages, houses and gardens in her life. Uh, in Images and Shadows, she dedicates a chapter to each of the people or the houses or the settings that were important to her. Um, this very first photograph, though, is kind of plunging us into the middle of a story. I wanted to introduce my talk with this photograph because not only is it a lovely photograph, but it also reflects a turning point in her life. In her early 30s, my uh, grandmother was uh, going through a very difficult period, uh, which I'll tell you about later, uh, and she found herself in London where 
she was inspired despite having been surrounded all her life by intellectuals and writers and incredibly uh, refined uh, uh, salons. Uh, she was inspired to become for the first time a writer herself and her first field was biography and she was also a historian. Um, Cullen mentioned her beautifully researched Merchant of Prato. Though Possibly now she's best known for her war diary, War in Valdorcia. Um, let's begin at the beginning with her family history, her American family. She had an American fa father called Bayard Cutting. The Bayard family, the, the Cutting family was an incredibly um, wealthy and uh, cultivated and important family in New York in Long Island, and they had a lovely house called Westbrook, which has since become a state park. It was donated by the Cutting family because of the four Cutting children, that's Bayard with a beard at, uh, standing behind the, um, uh, the bench, and the others are Bronson, Justine, and Olivia. But of the four of them, only one had a child. The only child was Iris, my uh, grandmother. Um, the cuttings lived in great style. They traveled in great style. <laughs> this is just the way I think we would all like to travel now. <laughs> I love this photograph. Here he is. Bayard Cutting was an exceptional man in his own right. Um, he was a very brilliant. He attracted the attention of uh, scholars of Edith Wharton, who was a friend of uh, his father. Um, and he seemed destined for a brilliant political and diplomatic career. He was sent, in fact, to London. Here he is with his daughter, his, his only child, Iris looking very unhappy. <laughs> he was sent to London where he met the beautiful Sybil Cuff, a member of an aristocratic Anglo-Irish family, um, very charming and intelligent, but also very capricious and willful. She was um, to play a, a leading part, of course, as her mother in Iris's life. This is Desert Court, the beautiful house in Ireland, so I should explain that um, the first chapters of Images and Shadows are dedicated to, one is called Westbrook, so to the family home in America, and the life that they led there, incredibly opulent, but also a restrained and uh, philanthropic uh, lifestyle. Um, and then the much more easygoing atmosphere of Desert Court. Uh, right after they married, the young cuttings, um, the, the, the family illness showed itself in Bayard Cutting. He developed TB. He showed first signs of TB. So the first years of the cutting marriage were spent traveling around the world in a desperate search for a cure. They went to the Swiss sanatoriums, to deserts, and they ended up finally around uh, 1909 
on the Nile in Adahabeya, a local boat that had gift, been gifted to them by Bayad's father. And there, Bayad Cutting died when Iris was only seven. Here she is. She was born in 1902. Um, Bayard's great legacy to his daughter was um, a love of literature and of writing, but that came from her mother too. Uh, it, was all, it was also a letter that he wrote, a kind of testament to his young widow, saying, well, soon to be widow, saying, uh, Sybil, I want you to bring up Iris somewhere where she does not belong, where she won't have this terrible national feeling that has caused so much sorrow in the world. Bring her up somewhere where she doesn't belong, where she will not have roots, so she can marry whoever she wants. And this was certainly um, one of the, I think, a, a major a turning point in her life because she was then brought off to Italy by her mother who, brought, who bought this beautiful Renaissance villa called Villa Medici on the slopes of Florence and Fiesole. Um, this was the villa where Lorenzo the Magnificent used to gather the flower of Italian humanists, philosophers, poets, Converse through the night, it must have been wonderful. And she called in what was then a new friend, who was soon to become a great family friend of Iris too, the British architect, engineer, landscape uh, gardener called Cecil Pinsent. He designed the gardens of Villa Medici and then of many other Florentine gardens because uh, through Sybil Cutting, he became known to the other English-speaking residents of Florence, and there were very many at the time. The English-speaking colony in Florence was huge. Uh, Sybil Cutting's next-door neighbor was Bernard Berenson, and they soon struck up a great friendship, some say even more than a friendship, and um, she gathered around her a salon of um, authors like um, Edith Wharton, Henry James, Somerset Maugham, Aldous Huxley, really in incredible amount of fascinating people, art historians who came uh, following Berenson. So it was a really wonderful, this is the inside of Villa Medici, the so known, uh, known as the Chinese drawing room, uh, the silk, uh, silk drawings of uh, Chinese plants and uh, birds. She, it was very much an ivory tower, though, Villa Medici. It was very remote, very, um, it, it had no really connection with the world around it, certainly not with the Florentine world the, and not with Italy either at all. Uh, Iris herself says in the biography, in her autobiography, that she grew up a very lonely little girl, surrounded by brilliant minds, but with nobody her age, uh, with mostly books for company. And uh, that the First World War was hardly perceived by the inhabitants of Villa Medici at all, except as an unpleasant noise off stage. That was all it was. Um, she had slightly more contact with Italian reality because 
Uh, Bernard Berenson convinced her mother, she didn't go to school, of course, she only had private tutors. Uh, he convinced her mother to have her study the classics with an Italian teacher who she absolutely adored and who was also active in helping refugees, Italian refugees, in the First World War. So after the big Italian defeat at Caporetto, when um, the trains were bringing uh, refugees and wounded uh, through Florence, she went to the station with him. She was then only 14. And she said, that was the first time I saw the face of humanity in flight. The, this was, will be then a constant theme because she was, she was a real intellectual. She was a wonderful writer. And at the same time, strange combination, she was in love with action. She really believed that it was necessary to act and not just, like so many intellectuals, study and write. So this was a, a theme, that the, the, the theme of helping refugees comes back again and again in her life and works. Uh, finally, she really did make contact with Italian reality when she met her future husband, Antonio Rigo. Uh, Antonio Rigo was a son of uh, an Italian nobleman. Uh, he was not considered uh, a good match for Iris by her mother, but Sybil would not have considered anybody a good match because she wanted to keep Iris by her side. Um, so much so that when they finally got married, Iris did not get out of bed for the wedding day. <sighs> She was known for her, um, she, she was kind of a legendary figure in Florence at the time. She was uh, known for her fainting fits. Uh, she would faint at the dinner table, probably to attract attention, I don't know, or, or she would receive her guests reclining on the sofa and she was always ill, except when there was something exciting to do, then she would leap up and suddenly be miraculously cured. Uh, do really some rather adventurous things like riding a camel through the desert. <laughs> um, so she was, uh, as, a, as a very unkind Florentine wit said, oh, Sybil, yes, yeah, so she's ill again. I wonder what bug it is this time. Could it be the humbug? <laughs> Here she is, beautiful on her wedding day. And leaving with her husband beautiful portico of Villa Medici, so this beautifully refined, elegant, cosmopolitan atmosphere. She's leaving to go to this forlorn, bleak, deserted place. So what, why, what inspired them to do this, These, this young couple in 1924? They found this incredibly... Um, barren estate south of Florence in southern Tuscany and bought it because their aim was to improve the lot of the people living there, to make a difference, to uh, find enough, enough work to fill a lifetime. And in the course of not even 20 years, because from 1924 to 1939, when all work stopped because of the war, 
uh, they really wrought most incredible changes in this landscape, just to reassure you, it looks like this today, <laughs> and not like, not as it was before. So my grandfather was immensely interested in agriculture and in reclaiming this very barren land, mostly just clay hills filled with stones. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the work consisted at the beginning simply in water management, trying to um, you know, build reservoirs and dams and irrigation channels, getting stones out of the soil. This, this is a later photograph. It shows a tractor already, but at the beginning they had nothing, really nothing but manual labor. And of course, um, after... Um, reclaiming the land, the, the main purpose was to uh, make life better for its inhabitants. Uh, they lived in these terribly poor huts in very difficult conditions. Some of the families had nothing, their only riches were a pig. They had a pig which was killed at Christmas and for the rest of the year they would go foraging, they would get um, make flour out of chestnuts the chestnuts that grew on Mount Amyata nearby, and that was it. So they were really incredibly poor. Um, my grandmother tells a story in Images and Shadows of when she, as a young bride coming from Villa Medici, accompanied her husband to a visit to one of the farmers and found they were the very big families because the children then married and stayed on with their parents and so on. And so they were big families, and she found this... Uh, family with uh, in in practically a single room with one bed with the old head of the family the the grandfather dying in the bed and beside him his granddaughter giving birth you can imagine she fled she was absolutely shocked uh, but she quickly uh, you know pulled herself together and Right from the beginning, she called in her friend Cecil Pinsent to help her in redesigning because they really reshaped the landscape and as a consequence, all the buildings that were needed to go with this reshaping. So not only houses like this one, Podere Tipo means like a model farmhouse. Uh, they built a great many of these, I think around 50 or something like that. Um, this is how they actually looked when they were carried out. So, of course, a huge difference in life's in quality of life. Um, so not just building the houses, the Cecil Pinsent was also called upon uh, right from the beginning to start building a garden. The garden was... Uh, took shape only over the years because obviously water was needed first of all for agriculture. So as water became more and more available, the garden was expanded. But Cecil Pinsent also was called upon to build um, a clinic, schools, um, a, gent a social workers club for the workers on the estate, and um, one of the priorities was uh, the children's education. Of course, practically nobody could read or write. And um, the farmers weren't unwilling to send their children to school, but it was just impossible. First of all, there were no schools. So a school had to be built. Uh, roads had to be made to get to the schools. 
And then uh, there had to be a way for the children to be brought to school because the, the parents had to go and work in the fields. They certainly couldn't uh, waste hours bringing their children to school. So she devised a system of school buses. These were the lucky ones, the ones where, who lived near or on roads where horse and cart could go because the unlucky ones had this as a school bus, which was very slow indeed. So it was a very revolutionary type of school. In those times, we're talking about 20s and early 30s, um, there was a, a fascist program for schools, which consisted in a lot of marching and shouting and, and uniforms and so on. Of course, nothing of all that went on. My grandmother had her own program, and it was a Montessori type of program in which the children were encouraged to... Uh, give free expression to their creativity. They had their little vegetable gardens. They had plays. I mean, it was really revolutionary for the time and not just for that part of Italy. It was, I think, would have been revolutionary anywhere in, in Europe. Uh, there was a vaccination program for the children. Wonderful faces of these peasant women. Uh, and the interesting thing was that this idea of uh, reshaping the landscape, of improving the life of the people who lived there, uh, wasn't just um, a, a functional and practical um, concept. There was, there was also a deeply aesthetic philosophy. So, for example, when... Uh, certain lands were reclaimed and new farm buildings had to be uh, built for the farmers to live in so that they could farm the new land. Um, they also needed roads to get to the farms. And this fresco, for example, in the Cappella dei, Ma uh, dei Magi uh, from the 15th century, but others also from Sienese uh, painters of the um, 14th century, were taken as an example, as an aesthetic example. We have to build a road. Let's build a beautiful road. Let's build it with cypresses along the, the sides. And this has since become such an icon of Tuscany. It's become a real feature of the Italian landscape. But it, only, uh, it's, it was only created in the late 20s. In... Uh, right in 1925, uh, the Origos had a little boy, Gianni. Uh, he lived uh, mostly at La Foce with his parents and was very much a part of the uh, wonderful creation of this uh, realization of this bucolic Virginian, Virginian utopia, which they really managed to carry out. Here he is in 1930. But in 1933... Gianni fell sick uh, with a family disease of tuberculosis. He died of uh, tubercular meningitis. And that was obviously a terrible blow. My grandmother fled to London. Uh, in the years to come, for quite a few years, she would spend her time between London and La Forcia trying to come to terms with living in the place that had so many memories of her son. Uh, her husband plunged himself into agricultural work, and she uh, went very often to visit her friends and relatives in London. There, 
a whole new world was opened up to her because Italy was in the middle of a, a regime, a fascist regime, whereas in London she was able to come into contact with a great many intellectuals. She, she began writing to take her mind off the grief caused by Gianni's death, something to distract her mind. And she uh, wrote uh, a very short biography of Allegra, uh, Byron's little daughter who died at the age of three. This work came to the attention of Leonard and Virginia Woolf, who published it. And after that, she embarked on the career of, as a biographer and as a historian. She attended pacifist rallies. She had, uh, obviously, La Forte couldn't offer her uh, such an intellectual riches. But in 1937, she realized that the way things were going in Italy and that she had an American passport, though her, her, her husband was Italian, she realized that she would have to make a choice between staying on in England or choosing to stay in Italy, choosing her adopted country and her husband and La Forte, and she chose La Forte and Antonio. Um, this was afterwards. In the, when she came back definitively to Italy, she decided that she would keep a diary. Just to set down her thoughts, she felt very unhappy about, apart from the fact that she couldn't speak out, or she was already looked upon with suspicion as an Anglo-American. She had the hand in her American passport and, and um, she was, you know, sheltered behind her Italian husband. Um, but she decided to set down her thoughts and her feelings, uh, her interpretations of uh, um, what she read in the newspapers and above all, what she saw around her by talking to very many different types of people, not only the workers at La Forge, but she frequently went to Rome and Florence, and just the people she talked to on the train, and most importantly, uh, her godfather, uh, William Phillips, was the American ambassador in Rome, and he used to talk to her a lot. A lot of uh, anecdotes in the in her diary are about um, Philip's meeting with the king of Italy, Philip's meeting with Chano, who's Mussolini's brother-in-law, the gossip going around in the Roman aristocratic circles. It makes for really light and interesting reading, also because my grandmother wrote so beautifully that uh, her sentences flow into each other and you don't realize that you're actually having a great deal of fun. Um, in the meantime, she and Antonio, of course, had decided to uh, continue their work at La Forge to have other children. Um, my mother tells me that this is photograph is wrong. It's actually a photograph of her sister, but <laughs> never mind. Anyway, she was born in 1940. Uh, sorry, but it's all in the book, so. <laughs> And then um, her sister was born in 1943. Uh, at this point, um, Iris brought back with her from England a, a series of um, 
experiences that she'd had there. I forgot to say that she took an active part in um, also through the Quaker community uh, in helping Jewish children the Kinder Transport Scheme, also privately funding the escape of some of these Jewish children from Germany. Of course, when she came back to Italy, that was not possible, but she did bring her um, English ideas with her. She decided that she could easily host and shelter and feed uh, children from the bombed cities of the north of Italy. The first big Allied bombings were in Genoa and Turin, and a lot of people were homeless, and she decided that she could easily house 24, 25 children, small children. So she um, tried to apply for that. There was a lot of bureaucratic red tape, and it wasn't something that was done in Italy, and so on. So she just cut through the red tape and went straight to her connections in the Italian royal family, and she finally got her way. And war in Valdorcia opens with the arrival of these very small, very pale, um, very frightened and homesick little children, mostly under the age of four. In the meantime, the war was coming. Just, I mean, the children were sent to La Foce because they were supposed to be safe there. But in point of fact, the war was coming to the Val d'Orcia as the Americans landed in the south. Um, the Germans pushed back nor northwards and La Foce became actually in the front line of war. Um, this war in Val d'Orcia, whereas the, the, the diary of the pre-war years is called a chill in the air, and that's exactly what it describes. It describes this very tense, uh, gloomy atmosphere. It depend, describes Mussolini's um, campaign to propaganda campaign to convince the Italians that they would actually become allies with their age-old enemy, the Germans. Um, they didn't distinguish much between the Germans and the Austrians, um, and they were their enemies in the First World War and during the Italian Wars of Independence. So uh, it was hard to make them understand that, that he considered the Germans to be their next ally. Whereas war in Valdorcia is the story of the war years, of the years in which a small rural community suddenly is shattered by the arrival of war. And um, Iris finds herself helping all sorts of people. Again, the refugees that we were talking about, not just you know, the kinder transport, but also now uh, the partisans. Obviously, the partisans were all over the place, fighting in woods, uh, asking for help, and it, there were different kinds of partisan, not partisans, not just because their political loyalties were different, but because they were very often um, infiltrated with spies, fascist spies. So it was very difficult to, to know how much you could say, how much you could help, what you should could do. I think my grandmother always erred on the side of doing too much. Um, she helped all the refugees who were coming in from the cities, desperately trying to find food. She helped um, the Allied prisoners of war, who of course were escaping from the German uh, camps to try and rejoin 
the army. Uh, she helped also the uh, Italian uh, soldiers who were hunted down by the Germans as deserters because after the 8th of September 1943, when... Um, the Italian government, well, the king basically fled and Italy changed sides. The Germans were obviously furious and all these young soldiers who thought the war was over and they could go back home were considered deserters. And some of them belonged to farms at La Forche, so they had to be helped and, and guided elsewhere. They couldn't go back home or their families would be shot. The refugee children looking very different from when they arrived, very happy and well-fed. Here they are again. The, that's my grandmother with her baby in her arms, uh, Donata, born in 1943, and my mother with the hat and the coat. Now, this is uh, probably just shortly before, um, in the June of 1944, the Germans came and uh, passed through La Forche, took over La Forche and said, okay, you and all these children and these farmers around, who, because a lot of the farmers had come to seek safety at the villa, can come and can go and hide in the, in the cellars. They'll probably be safe from the bombs, but we will be taking over the house. That didn't last long because at a certain point the, the, the fighting grew so fierce that the Germans just turned them out and said, you have to find safety elsewhere. Sorry, we, we need this place. And uh, at that point, they had to decide what to do with these 24 small children when the, uh, the Allied planes were flying over the roads and bombing everything that moved and uh, uh, the, the fields were mined. So they decided to take them uh, to the nearest town where they had friends called Montepulciano. Now, today it's 10 kilometers by road. At the time, they had to go through fields uh, and it was they they were mostly very small children my grandmother my mother was one of the the bigger ones my uh, grandfather had to carry his little little the, the baby donata in his arms and the other children did as best they could but it was quite a quite a march through the fields under the bombs hiding dead bodies from the gaze of the children etc they finally arrived in safely in Montepulciano, were greeted with great jubilation by the by the population, and were housed in their in their friend's palazzo. Uh, their friends hastily put together a cardboard sign saying Kinderheim in the hopes that the Germans who were still there would leave them alone. Um, after uh, sh shortly afterwards, the Germans left, and they were definitively safe. Uh, this is in later years. The children grow up with my grandfather. My grandmother Iris in the 1950s. Uh, at this point, the garden at La Forcia, which is still one of her great achievements. She had a very full life, but the garden is a great achievement because she participated very much in uh, the planning of the garden with Cecil Pinsent. Cecil Pinsent had a very, uh, had a, a, a humanist uh, 
philosophy of the garden as a, a geometrical Italian-style garden, green with box hedges. If he had had his way, it would be all would be completely green and geometrical. But my grandmother, with her English heritage, also wanted colour and flowers and a slightly more informal approach. Um, over the years, first in 1924, um, when they arrived, the very first years were dedicated to creating a small part of the garden, and over the years the garden was developed, ending in 1939. Also with the help of the Italian, the American, sorry, the American grandmother who arrived in the very early years of her marriage and was shocked by the fact that she, they had something like one bathroom with uh, a trickle of water coming out of the tap. So she paid for a pipeline to be laid through the woods to a point where they could um, find a, a spring and make a lake just to feed the needs of the house and the garden. That was also thanks to the American contribution that the garden was able to come about. This is a wonderful photograph by a great friend uh, of Iris Arrigo, the wonderful um, American photographer, Milton Gendel. Just a few days, just a few years before her death, because she died in 1988 at a lovely Roman palazzo. This is La Foce, as it is today. You can see the... Uh, guiding hand of uh, Cecil Pinsent and his humanist philosophy with the box hedges, the geometrical um, outlay, and um, beyond the wisteria, which is in bloom, the English-style garden. This, I can tell that this, this uh, photograph was taken probably around the end of April, because the lemon trees are missing, the lemons are still in the orangery, they would be on those white bases that you see in the fields, in the um, parts just between the house and the lower garden. Um, it's, uh, La Fauche lies at 600 meters above sea level, so it does freeze in winter and the lemons do have to go into an orangery. This is the view from the house, Montamiata in the distance. Montamiata is, uh, was once a volcano in sort of the presiding mountain of the area. And this is the lower garden with a, a wink at the Baroque uh, gardens of Italy by Cecil Pinsent. And here's my mother, the present owner of La Foce. <laughs> I'm at the end of my talk. I'm very willing, if you want, to answer any questions. Yeah.